I first preached uh, in this church in 1974. I'm pretty sure this is the first time I've ever done it without a tie on. <laughs> and I'm trying hard not to imagine Doc Joe Rickard giving me that look. <laughs> I'm sure that she has better things to do today than to check in on the latest trends in clerical apparel. <clears throat> Before my senior year in seminary, I had a summer job in southeastern Georgia working for a fine southern gentleman named Mr. Hoke Carter. Everybody called him Mr. Hoke. Mr. Hoke owned Farmer's Enterprise, which I renamed Chickens Are Us, because we did it all. We hatched them, we housed them, we fed them, we uh, herded them into trucks headed for a variety of destinations where they would be roasted, broasted, grilled, and fried. We also raised laying hens and gathered eggs. In raising laying hens, you have to first get them to a certain age, and those young hens are called pullets. You establish a pullet house where those chicks can mature. The problem was roosters. Uh, about the last thing you want in a pullet house are roosters. If you don't know why, please call Pastor Paul. He would love to have the talk with you. When those chicks were hatched, there we had some workers called sexers. They would stand along a conveyor belt and take a hold of one of these chickens, and they would identify the gender of the hatchlings and place them in the appropriate category where they would go to begin their life's work, either as a pullet headed for the egg farm or as a broiler headed for that big frying pan in the sky. I actually got, a, I got an email, I think all the faculty staff got it from Troy Martin years ago. He was reading a student financial aid form, and the, the parent's occupation was sexer. Troy was puzzled by this, and he was wanting to make sure that this person was not employed in something pornographic. And I think I was able to help them out. The sexers were really good at what they did. I never could figure out how they could tell whether that was a, a, a rooster or a hen. But even the sexers made mistakes. So in a house of 14,000 pullets, you knew there were invariably a few roosters. You knew they were in there. You just couldn't tell it for a while. But after a few weeks, it started to become evident as the comb or the top knot of the rooster would start to appear. And when I saw that for the first time, I went to Mr. Hoke and told him about it. He didn't seem the least bit surprised. I asked him, what are you going to do about it? And he said, nothing right now. Well, that didn't suit me. I'm an activist. 
I wanted to do something about it. I wanted those roosters out of there. And he said, no, we won't do anything yet. Do you know what would happen if you go in there and try to get those few roosters? Can you imagine being in a chicken house of 14,000 psychotic chickens all trying to get away from you? You traumatize a young pullet, and they won't lay eggs for a while. No, Mr. Hoke said, we'll wait. He was much more concerned about eggs than he was about roosters. He said, when the time comes, we'll get the roosters. And he was right. When the time came to move those uh, hens to the egg farm, it wasn't hard at all to grab the young roosters and send them to the broiler houses. And I learned a very important lesson that summer, that you can't hurry the process. You've got to wait until the right time. I learned that you dare not try to solve one problem by causing an even bigger problem. Mr. Hope Carter, the owner of Chickens R Us, taught this young seminary student a really important lesson about seeing the big picture. You never want to do anything that might jeopardize the harvest. That brings us to our text here in Matthew 13. You may have noticed that Matthew chapter 13 is a chapter filled with parables. Stories intended to help us grasp the nature and workings of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is that realm where God's will is done. It is that place where whatever God wants happens. The coming of Jesus into this world meant a lot of things, but unmistakably it meant the inauguration of the kingdom of God in this world. Jesus clearly identifies himself with God's kingdom. He embodies it. He shows us what it is about, how it operates, what its goals, what its purposes are, how it operates, and so on. The Bible is clear that God created this world and everything in it, and he intends to have it all to his own. Jesus' coming into the world indicates that the seed of the kingdom has indeed been planted. It is here and now among us. But as this parable quickly establishes, the coming of God's kingdom into the world is not without opposition. This world is, in effect, contested real estate. There is an adversary who opposes the reign of God, who frustrates, however possible, God's redemptive intentions for his world. So this parable is intending to tell us something uh, that although God's kingdom has clearly come among us, it is not yet here in its fullness. There is a struggle, there is a battle going on presently that makes it incumbent upon us as citizens of the kingdom to recognize and then live accordingly. New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg suggests that this parable intends to address the question, if God's kingdom is here, why are we still experiencing so much trouble in the world? That question perhaps explains why Jesus emphasizes the now and not yet nature of the kingdom. 
God's kingdom is here and now, but it is also yet to come. So what, of, what all of that means is that we live life somewhere in the middle, as it were. We live life in the meantime. There are two tra- strange twists in this parable that uh, surprise us. They, I think they tip us off to the meaning of the parable. First, there is an enemy who sows tares amongst the wheat. Whereas the chicken sexers made mistakes, the enemy does this deliberately. Tares are what we would probably call bearded darnel. Botanically, it is a plant very close to wheat. It is very difficult to distinguish from wheat when the plants are young. The roots of the two plants tend to entangle themselves with each other so that they're not easily separated. But when the heads of the wheat appear, there's no mistaking which is which. It's sort of like the rooster's top knot. So there are weeds in this field along with the wheat. The second more surprising element is the response of the sower to the news of the tares. Leave them alone. That response bugs the daylights out of all of us committed weed whackers. But in light of what we just said about bearded darnel, it makes perfect sense. Don't do anything to to harm the wheat. Remember, the purpose of the, the farmer is to have a good harvest, not to see how pure he can keep his fields. As Mr. Hoke reminded me, it's about eggs. It's not about roosters. It's not about the purity of the pullet house. Rooting up the weeds would actually accomplish the enemy's goal of ruining the harvest. And we see that though, even though nothing is done about the weeds, the wheat survives. It grows despite the presence of the weeds. There is a certain resiliency to the wheat, perhaps underestimated by the enemy, that allows it to progress in spite of all the attempts to subvert the harvest. In the end, the the farmer still harvests his crops, destroying the weeds and salvaging the wheat. The ultimate purpose of the sower is not defeated by the presence of the tares. He bides his time until both wheat and tares can be taken care of in appropriate ways. This, the the, the all-important truth that emerges here, I think, is this, that the kingdom of God can be vitally present in the world without wiping out all the opposition. That's something that must await the harvest. And so this parable is cautioning us against trying to help the harvest along by taking judgment into our own hands. This parable reveals something very, very important about God. To put it bluntly, God is not nervous. God is not sitting somewhere in heaven this morning wringing his hands in anxiety over the machinations of the enemy. As unsatisfying as it might be for 
for us weed whackers, God permits the righteous and the unrighteous to coexist in the world, sometimes superficially indistinguishable from one another, until the time comes for the harvest. So if there's any place in the Bible that tells us to chill out, to relax, it's right here. This is, in short, a cautionary tale to all of us wannabe weed whackers to not take matters into our own hands and end up jeopardizing the harvest. There are no shortcuts to judgment. I'm embarrassed to confess this, but there was one occasion where I actually tried to use my weed eater to weed our perennial garden. Did not go well. That little one to two minute experience was characterized by the repeated use of the word oops and terrified glances at the house to make sure Nancy hadn't seen what I'd just done. I did a lot more harm than good. I'd bet that there are many of you today who could relate a story where some well-meaning soul decided to take matters into his or her own hands and ended up doing a lot more damage than good for the kingdom. Because sometimes it's pretty difficult to tell the wheat from the tares. But there's another reason that we shouldn't do this, and this gets to the real point. We shouldn't do this because this is something that God has reserved for himself. Throughout Scripture, it is unmistakable that judgment, vengeance, etc., belongs ultimately to God and to God alone. We are clearly told to leave the weeding to God, who is the master reaper. I mean, thinking about that, I suppose that in one sense, we could say that a lot of the mess that we call human history is largely a testament to what happens when human beings try to usurp God and take matters into their own hands, purifying the wheat field. Now, let me make it clear what this parable is not saying. It is not condoning, nor is it urging a kind of passive resignation on the part of Christians. Of course, we're to work for justice and righteousness. But we must take care that we do not attempt to force the kingdom upon the God and upon the world in which in ways which compromises its basic nature according to what scripture teaches. I don't think it's any coincidence that between the telling of this parable and the interpretation of this parable that in between you have another little parable that we call the parable of the leaven which tells us something about how the kingdom of God actually works. It's like yeast. You ever seen yeast work? No, you haven't. You've seen the effects of where yeast has been at work, but you've never actually seen it at work. Say, okay, so what? The the kingdom is here. It is not here yet in its fullness. We shouldn't take matters in our own hands. We should leave judgment to God. But what does that mean for us right here, right now? What does that have to say to Houghton Church in 2017? 
Remember that I said earlier that what likely prompted this parable in the first place was the attitude on the part of some of the disciples who were already growing discontented with the opposition they were experiencing. Their attitude was, we need to fix this, and we need to fix it now. And they tried. Remember that story when the disciples wanted to call down fire from heaven on some inhospitable Samaritans? Jesus' response was, Are you nuts? Seriously? That's my paraphrase. How many times did Jesus facepalm over these guys in response to them? And those guys are still among us. When it comes to impatience, our name is Legion, for we are many. The widespread desire to purge, to engage in some serious weed-whacking on the part of Christians is so incriminating. It implies that we believe that we actually know the difference between the good guys and the bad guys. But only God truly knows that. How often have we been fooled as to the real character of someone's heart? We get fooled by their flowery words or their apparent sincerity. We get fooled by their promises to fix whatever's wrong with the world. When it comes to knowing what's in a person's heart, we aren't very good at it, truth be told. Hence the constant biblical warnings about not judging. I regularly see on Facebook post-targeting people, assuring everyone who reads that this poor mutt is going to have to give an account to God for some unpardonable act or belief that offends the the bee in the existential bonnet of the person writing the post. It's the ultimate squelch. Consign your adversary to judgment. A couple problems with that. Number one, that's God's call. Number two, you know what? We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And it's going to start with the church. So maybe we ought to tread lightly in our judgments. Maybe even worse, recently, I've seen these postings all over social media where some Christians are verbally tossing other Christians out of the wheat field because they aren't doctrinally pure in the eyes of that particular weed whacker. I know you've all heard the word jihad. It is a word that causes a lot of fear and anxiety. It may be an Arabic word, but it is a concept that has had a religious application from the beginning. And folks, jihad is wrong, whether it's physically or verbally violent. It's wrong whether it is pursued by Islamic fundamentalists or well-intentioned Christian zealots trying to make America great again. The history of Christianity is filled with one episode after another of how much damage Christians can do when they take up the methods of the world and try to jumpstart the kingdom of God using carnal power. Think of the Crusades, the Inquisition, 
the witch trials in Salem, all of the various litmus tests that we have used to separate the wheat from the chaff over the years. Don't mess with the harvest. Leave it to God. But as I implied earlier, that raises the inescapable question that if we live in the pre-harvest days, if we live, as it were, in the meantime, what are we to do in the meantime? How shall we then live? Well, the short answer to that is simply be the church. Or as Jesus put it, be in the world but not of the world. Incarnate the kingdom like Jesus did. But as you well know, actually doing that is a whole lot more complicated than just saying it. James Davison Hunter is a sociologist at the University of Virginia. And in 2010, he wrote a book called To Change the World, subtitled The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. Hunter contends that the posture of the church towards the world these days should be one of what he terms faithful presence. Think about that for a moment. The church has to be present in the world. We must not cloister ourselves behind the walls. But the church has to be present in in a way that enables it to remain faithful. Hunter believes that this faithful presence is accomplished in two steps, what he calls affirmation and antithesis. Affirmation means trying to find the good around us and affirming it and enabling it. When our children were small, Nancy and I agreed that to the best of our ability, we're going to try to say yes as often as we could because we knew there were times when we would have to say no. No child develops in a healthy way when all they ever hear is no. I grew up in a church that mostly said no. A church that was constantly standing in judgment of anything it thought to be worldly. How's that worked out? Well, when I look at my extended family today and look at where they are spiritually, I have to say it hasn't worked out so well. Yes, of course we live in a fallen world. Yet God's grace has not been removed from this rebellious planet. This really is my Father's world. There is so much beauty. There is so much goodness around us. This world is filled with amazing people, many of whom are not believers. People who are creative and brilliant, people who sacrificially give themselves on a daily basis to curing disease and making life better. Our world is filled with causes that deserve our support and our affirmation. The institutional church has not cornered the market on righteousness and goodness. And just like God in the aftermath of creation, we need to take a look at our world and see in it what is good. We need to be crystal clear these days about what really is the gospel and what is mere tradition or cultural baggage. 
I grew up in a spiritual environment that looked with suspicion on anything that didn't happen within the four walls of the church building. We used to say that our church was against premarital sex because we were afraid it would lead to dancing. That's an overstatement, but not by as much as you might think. We were defined by what we were against. And what a mistake that was. The church needs to affirm whatever it can affirm and rejoice that it is one more piece of evidence that creation is good, that it is a reflection of God's purpose for what he has made. Christians simply cannot be the party of no. In 588 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. He confiscated much of the collective wealth from the temple. He forcefully deported a vast majority of the Israelites, including their leaders, to Babylon a thousand miles away. The Israelites did not understand what was going on. And several prominent members of that exiled community prophesied their imminent deliverance from captivity and immediate return to Judea. But there was another prophet, a guy by the name of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a different word. He wrote a letter to the exiles telling them that they would be in Babylon for several generations. We read part of that letter earlier in this service in chapter 29. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The God of Israel... To those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Those Israelites had to come to, the fact, come to grips with the fact that they weren't the only ones growing in that particular field. And they needed to find ways to cope and to flourish until God delivered them. They are not to sit around pining for the good old days. They are not to be planning some kind of violent insurrection. Exile did not mean that God had abandoned Israel. Rather, exile was the place where God was at work. So Jeremiah says, settle in, build, plant, marry, have children, seek the welfare of your captors, pray for the very people who are your enemies. These people were being called to enter into the culture in which they found themselves. But to enter it, (coughs) excuse me, as God's people. Now, Jeremiah was considered to be a traitor by many for conveying this message. But his point was that, that God was present with them and God was at work with them in the context of the exile, in the context of their present moment. And in that context, faithfulness meant being a blessing to the world in which they were placed. I think it's evident that the situation in which Christians find themselves today has a lot in common with those exiles in Babylon. 
It's like wheat growing in a field full of weeds. But the church is called to embody the shalom of God, God's peace, and to embody it in those circumstances in which he has placed us, to actively seek that peace on behalf of others. And this has to be a vision of the church in the 21st century. How can the church be a blessing? Affirmation. On the other hand, there is what Hunter calls antithesis. This is where the wheat must necessarily differentiate itself from the tares. This is what Jesus meant when he talked about being a light in the world and not losing our saltiness of being in the world, but not of the world. As the primary expression of God's kingdom in this present world, the church, by definition, will always be a peculiar people. Set apart for God and his redemptive purposes in the world. There has seldom been a more crucial moment in human history for this than our present circumstances. God's people must clearly be identifiable. We dare not become indistinguishable from the weeds. As Jesus said, you're to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Jamie Smith wrote, to carry out the work of being God's image bearers requires attesting the fact that something is wrong. It requires recognizing that we're not in Kansas anymore. We're not in the garden anymore. And so the body of Christ is called to be that peculiar people who occupy creation and remind the world that it really belongs to God. As Christians, we share a world with others, a lot of whom have very different ways of seeing reality, have very different values. That's life in the meantime. We must contribute to the overall flourishing of our world, our local communities, while we await the kingdom to come in its fullness. What would it mean for Houghton Wesleyan Church to seek the prosperity of the Genesee Valley, of Allegheny County? What would it mean for this congregation to be a faithful presence in the circumstances of this day? The answer to those questions is a huge part of our mission as a church. In the early 5th century, the world seemed to be in chaos. The Roman Empire was teetering on the brink of collapse. A Christian bishop named Augustine wrote a book which has the English title, City of God. Augustine portrayed reality in terms of two cities. There is the earthly city of man, there is the heavenly city of God. And he said Christians inhabit both of those cities. Of course, their ultimate loyalty must be to God's city, but Augustine made it very clear that as Christians we must seek the good of the earthly city and work for its flourishing without ever forgetting that we belong to the other city. Life in the meantime involves active citizenship in two cities. When I was in high school and going out with my friends on a Friday or Saturday night, I can still very vividly remember my dad 
looking at me before I walked out the door and saying, you remember whose boy you are. That was my dad's way of reminding me that I've been raised a certain way. You live in a world where wheat and weeds grow together, indistinguishable at times. You live in the meantime, awaiting God's harvest. As you make your way into that kind of world, always remember whose children you are. Amen.